is Zach Douglas. I'm an associate pastor here at Country Oaks, and it's a joy to preach uh, this morning. <laughs> Thank you. Our, our passage for this morning is Luke chapter 17, verses 11 to 19. So could you please stand for the reading of God's word? Luke 17, 11 to 19. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers, who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this morning and, and the opportunity that we get to study your word and to be shaped by it. I pray that as we uh, go through this passage about the, the ten lepers with the one returning, that, that we would be more conformed to the image of your son, that you would grow in us, in us hearts of faith and hearts of uh, praise and thanksgiving. Thank you for who you are and all that you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, around this time of year, uh, preachers will point out the thanklessness in our culture, obviously, because we just celebrated Thanksgiving. Uh, but that, that thanklessness seems to only grow every year. So we'll get another year of, uh, of this being pointed out, that our culture is growing more and more thankless. And on the surface, you can see that just in the fact that, that one of the, the most overlooked, if it weren't for all the food and the football holidays, would be Thanksgiving. That as soon as, as Halloween uh, ends, or just even now just before it, Home Depot, everywhere, Walmart has Christmas decorations up. It's the season of giving, it's the season of getting gifts, and that just seems to keep getting more and more prevalent. There's heated arguments about when you can and cannot play Christmas music, when to or to not decorate. Um, and But on the deeper level, there's the, the rising rates of anxiety and depression in America, and Depression, anxiety, and thanksgiving, they're, they're mutually exclusive. And don't, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that those who struggle with anxiety and depression should just be more thankful, and that's that. I understand that anxiety and depression are deeply rooted issues, that there may be more causes, and that these, this, these struggles can last a long, long time. But what I am saying is that a major part of the solution to these problems is cultivating a heart of thanksgiving, as described in scripture. Thanksgiving, according to scripture, is something that is a common thread throughout our lives. It is not just an action, it is a part of who we are as believers. A great example of this is looking at the life of Paul, or looking at the writings of Paul. If you read any of his letters, which there's many, it is saturated with thanksgiving. He's thankful uh, for the salvation of these believers. He often tells the churches that he is thankful for their faith, that it's an encouragement to them or to him. 
He's thankful for the fruit of their faith. He's He's thankful for spiritual gifts. He's thankful for their partnerships in the gospel, which we've already talked about as we've studied Philippians. This week, we're taking a quick break from Philippians, but that is evidenced in this book. Most of all, he is thankful for the salvation offered in Christ Jesus. And that's most evident when he just breaks out into praise over a span of a few to many verses, talking about how thankful he is, how how amazing it is that we are saved by faith through Jesus Christ. So this morning we're going to talk about uh, those two things, faith and thanksgiving, and we'll we'll do that by looking at this story of the ten lepers with the one who returned. So first we'll look at uh, how we can learn from those who are healed, that's all ten, and then second, we will learn from the one who is saved. So let's look back at verse 11 and look at the, the ten who are healed. Luke 17, verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. Now this, this provides us context. Obviously, we are jumping right into the middle or maybe second or final third of Luke. And so this gives us context that he is on the way to Jerusalem, on the way to the cross. The, the journey to Jerusalem obviously has the goal of the cross as its conclusion. But along the way, the gospel writers have focused on including important details that reveal and affirm Jesus as the Messiah. I mean, that's the whole book of these, or the, the whole point of these books, is that we would see Jesus for who he truly is and believe in him as our Lord and Savior. And they do that by recounting many different things that he taught, many different things that he did, and many miracles that he performed. We see Jesus show his power over creation. He walks on water, he stops a storm. We see him cast out demons, showing his power over the spiritual world. And in this section, we see his power over sickness, and we see his power over death in other passages as well. This power, especially his power over death, show that he has come to reverse the effects of the fall. Most importantly, he has come to to be a sacrifice so that we could be saved. All of these miracles, all of these teachings, all of these actions reveal the power of Christ showing who he is as the Son of God, the Messiah, and our Savior. But why would Luke note that he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee? This is an important question to ask because of the conflict between the Samaritans and the Jews. If you read the Gospels, you see this evident many times. But the Jews claimed that the Samaritans weren't the people of God because they weren't fully Jewish, that they were part Jew, part Gentile, and they cast them out, ostracized them if they were found in Jerusalem, and treated them poorly because of this. And he includes this detail that they're between Samaria and Galilee to account for the fact that there is a Samaritan who we are supposed to look to as an example in this passage. So we know that Jesus is going to Jerusalem. He has a crowd following him. His disciples are with him. And in verse 12, it says, he entered a village, or as he entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. So the scene is set. So Jesus, the crowd, the disciples, they're all following him. They go to a village. They're met by lepers who have to stand at a distance. It's not just they got too excited and called out to Jesus. No, they were required by law to stand at a distance from people who did not 
not have leprosy. Leviticus 13, 45 to 46 says that the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose. And he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Lepers were social outcasts by the righteous requirement of the law. They were unclean, the the disease could spread, and they were cast out until they were healed. And even once they were healed, it wasn't that they just re-entered society. It was an eight-day process that included sacrifices and other rituals before they could be declared unclean and returned back into, into society. And obviously there's implications. Socially, they could no longer interact with friends or family, and it wasn't even until the eighth day of, their, of that process that they were even allowed to go back into their tent or into their home. So it, socially, you're, you're ostracized from friends and family. Financially, you couldn't work. You were on the fringes, literally, of society, outside of the, of the main part of your people. And, s- and so it's no wonder that they cry out for their entire lives, their entire identity has been shaped by this disease, and they, they see Jesus, they obviously know who he is. They call him by name and ask for mercy. It's a, it's a last-ditch effort to finally return to the lives that they once lived. So notice how they address Jesus. It says they lifted up their voices. A lot of times, a leprosy would affect the, the throat and the vocal cords, and so it was it pained them, literally, to cry out. So they lift up their voices in pain, saying, Jesus, Master. They call him out by name. They must have heard of the miracles he had performed. Jesus was causing quite a stir in Israel, and he's going to Jerusalem. And so they've heard about him. They've heard of the miracles, including when he heals a man of leprosy back in Luke 5. It is safe to assume that these lepers had heard about that. They heard who he, had, who he was, what he had done, and they wanted that same healing. They also call him, uh, or they recognize his authority. They call him master. And this isn't them declaring him Lord as we call Jesus Lord and master. But for Luke, it's the equivalent of, of times in the other gospels when Jesus is called rabbi. It's a recognition of authority, a sign of honor and respect. That Greek word is often associated with tutor or instructor, and so it has a similar connotation with rabbi. So these ten, at the very least, recognize that Jesus has some level of authority. They, are, they likely aren't recognizing his lordship, but they understand that there is something about Jesus, something that could lead to their healing. So they cry out for mercy, a common cry for those who know of Jesus' healing power, his that are desperate for help. So verse 14, we see Jesus' response. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. Now this is different than Jesus' other healings. He doesn't touch them or, or they don't touch his cloak and they're healed. No, Jesus tells them, go. He doesn't say you're healed and go. He just says, go and show yourselves to the priests implying that they would be healed. 
It'd be fruitless, it would be pointless, it would actually be against the law for them to go and show themselves to the priests since they weren't holy kings. He doesn't touch them to heal them. Instead, Jesus commands them to show themselves to the priests an act that would require the lepers to respond in faith. If they were standing there, they could still see the disease on their skin. They could know that they weren't healed, but they would have to respond in faith, and they do. Verse 14 continues. It says, And as they went, they were cleansed. The disease that had left them as social outcasts was miraculously healed. Their faith is in this command, this specific command of Jesus, results in relief from their affliction. J.C. Ryle says that their relief came to them as soon as they obeyed the commands of Christ. So what can we learn from these ten? This relief that they experience points us forward to an even greater truth about Jesus, and only one of them gets it. Nine out of the ten in this moment did not grasp the fullness of of who Jesus is. They didn't see the fullness laid out in his in his what he said and what he did. Instead, they simply saw him as a good teacher, someone who God worked through to heal, maybe simply a prophet. They were healed from their sickness, but they missed that they could be healed from far more. To these nine, Jesus was not the Messiah. He was just a teacher and a healer, and they that's what they had evidence of. And that's what a lot of unbelievers say about Jesus in the Bible. Recently, I was talking to one of my uh, friends who, who isn't a believer, and that's, that's essentially what he said. He doesn't believe in the afterlife. He doesn't believe that the Bible is true, but there's a lot of good wisdom, some things that are problematic. Jesus was just a good teacher and apparently healed people. They say that Jesus isn't who he says he is. And... A lot of, if, if they took just the surface level teachings that Jesus had, applied them to their lives, love your neighbor as yourself, don't cast the first stone if you've sinned, don't judge others, which that's just a misunderstood verse. Um, if they took all that, they would probably live a good life. They'd be seen as a good person by other people, not by God. They'd be seen um, as moral. They would probably have good friendships, good relationships with their families. What these nine are missing is what a lot of people who view Jesus the same way miss or are ignoring or and are rejecting, is that Jesus is more than just a healer or a teacher. Jesus is the Messiah. He is our Savior. He is the Son of God, God incarnate, and he offers us greater relief than just wise teachings and apparently some miracles. And that's what the one out of the ten saw, the Samaritan. So that brings us to our second point, learning from the one who is saved. Verse 15. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Let's look closely at what this man did. It's safe to assume that that his healing had been a prayer since the beginning of his disease. He's ostracized from everyone. If he doesn't have a wife and kids, he's ostracized from his family that he was close with. He doesn't have any friends who aren't lepers anymore. He doesn't work. He has to beg. 
And this disease had become a part of his identity, and he had no choice in the matter. But what we see is this man still has a love for God. If he was bitter or angry at God, that is clearly melted away in the fact that he looks at his skin, sees that he is healed, and immediately turns around. It doesn't say he went to the priest, was declared clean, and came back. No, it says he turns around when he sees that he is healed and immediately praises God. That this Samaritan, who was a social outcast, not just because of his leprosy, but because of where he came from, understood who Jesus is. And that's a theme of the Gospels and especially a theme of Luke, that the scope of the Gospel goes beyond just Israel. That God is calling everyone to himself. And we see that by the fact that Luke highlights a Samaritan as the example to be followed. A leper as one that we are supposed to emulate. Clearly this man saw beyond the surface. He saw who Jesus is. He realized there was a deep connection because he turns back uh, from going to the temple, which would have been obeying the law and obeying the, the specific words of Christ to return to Jesus and worship God in his temple. He saw that Jesus wasn't just a good teacher, healer, or a prophet, but that Jesus is the Savior that they had been waiting for. God had opened up his, the mind of this man to this truth. And that's, I mean, that's our, our prayer every time we come up in the pulpit and preach, is that God would open up those who don't believe, he would open up their minds to the truth of the gospel. Even if they've just seen, even if you've just seen Jesus as a good teacher who said some wise things. Jesus is God, and the only way that we can be saved is by putting our faith in him. By putting our faith in, in Jesus as he truly is, fully God and fully man, the son of the living God, the sinless one who died on the cross for our sins who came to earth, humbled himself, lived a perfectly righteous life, and submitted to God and going to the cross. And we put our faith in that. That what he did and the fact that he was resurrected, showing his power over sin and death, is enough for us to be saved. That it's not anything that we do. We are sinful and everything we do is tainted by sin. But it's what Jesus has done. We have to see ourselves as we truly are, sinful people who have rejected God. And we have to put our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Saying that who he is, what he, or who, uh, saying he is who he says he is, and who God says he is, and that he did what is sufficient for us to be saved, that nothing else could make us righteous in the eyes of God. That is how we are saved, and that is the example that is laid out by this Samaritan. This is what he has realized, and it might not be in an exhaustive, systematic theology. He may not have understood all of it, but he understood what is sufficient for salvation. And we can see this clearly both in, in the actions of this man. He praises God and falls down at the feet of Jesus with his, with his face down, and there's a clear connection between him praising God and him giving thanks to Jesus. But it's more than just a sign of respect. We also see it not just in his actions, but in what Jesus says. First, 
Jesus responds by asking about the other nine in verse 17. He says, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? This is not a surprise to Jesus, but it's more focusing on the other nine. Saying, look at their bad example. They did what, they may have done what he was, they were asked to do, what they were commanded to do, but they didn't see Jesus as he truly is. It really highlights the fact that Jesus was rejected by Israel. And even if they were worshiping God on the way to the temple, to the priests, they didn't do it rightly at the feet of Jesus, which is what this Samaritan is commended for in verse 19. Jesus says to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Now, at first glance, it just looks like it, it's saying, your faith in what I said has, has healed your sickness. But, but Luke uses a different word than he's used for healing when talking about the other nine, or, and including this leper. When he healed leprosy, he used a different word, and here Luke uses the word sozo, which has a lot of connotations with salvation. It could also be translated, your faith has saved you. And with the context of what's going on, that's what, what Jesus is saying here. I'm not saying the ESV is a bad translation. I love the ESV. But with the context and everything that's going on, it is clear that this man has been saved by his faith in something greater than just Jesus' specific command to be healed. He is saved by his putting his faith in Jesus as the Messiah. All of this together shows, that the, shows us that this Samaritan is an example for faith. True, saving faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that brings us to our final application, the importance of thanksgiving, because this man is commended for giving thanks. He falls down and praises God and gives thanks to Jesus and to God for what has happened in his life. I want to zero in on this, that he fell down giving Jesus thanks. And this is the concluding expression of the Samaritan's faith. It's not just that he had faith and then he gave thanks. It is part of that. It's showing his true heart of worship. So as we get to this second part of the sermon, or this third part really, I want to talk about why Thanksgiving is important, what it looks like, and then how we cultivate Thanksgiving. I know we're on the last verse, but we've still got uh, a little ways to go. This is not the conclusion. So one, why is Thanksgiving important? First, it is a recognition of who God is and what he has done in our lives. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those, according, or for those who are called according to his purpose. That is a blanket statement that doesn't just include good things, but includes the, the hard, tragic, painful parts of our lives that we'd categorize as suffering. It includes the difficult times where we can't see the light at the end of the tunnel, where it's hard to see what God is doing in our lives. This verse is, is really... Uh, goes in hand in hand or goes in conjunction with what Joseph says after his father dies and his brothers who sold him into slavery and started all, that action started all the things that happened in Joseph's life. At the end of Joseph's life, he looks at them and says, what man intended for evil, God intended for good. 
And yeah, that's easy for Joseph to, that seems easy for Joseph to say when he's second in command over all of Egypt and can pretty much get anything he wants. But if you read the story of Joseph, you see just a man who is faithful to God regardless of the circumstances. He lives out 1 Thessalonians 5.18, which says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. These truths, these verses apply to the example given to us in the leper. If we look at his life, he's afflicted with leprosy, ostracized from society, but it was used to show the glory of Christ and set an example for us. He is used as a positive example in God's word. That's something that we would all want. That God would take a moment from our lives, or that there's a moment in our lives that God could take and put into his word as an, as an example for all believers. This man received an honor that, because the scriptures are closed, none of us receive. He is an example of giving God thanks in all circumstances, having faith in all circumstances, regardless of tragedy, pain, evil, or sorrow. God worked out this, this suffering in this man's life for his good and for his glory, which always results in our good. Our pain, our sorrow, our tragedy may never reach a positive conclusion as we would define it, or maybe even as we would pray for it. But we can be confident that God will use it for his glorious will. I'm not promising that God will answer your prayers that, that involve sorrow and tragedy and resolve them in this life. We know that's not necessarily the case. If you've ever been to a funeral, you know that's not necessarily the case. But we can be confident that God will use all these things for our good and for his glory. Even if it just, if it just means that we're sanctified, we're more like Christ just a little bit at the end of it, or during it. We may simply be growing in our Christ-likeness. We aren't commanded to, to understand it. We're commanded to trust and to give thanks in all circumstances. So thanksgiving is important because we are recognizing who God is, recognizing what he has done for us. It's also important because it's an antidote to a number of sins and problems in our lives. And I mean by thanksgiving, I mean a whole disposition of thanksgiving, an attitude, a lifestyle of thanksgiving. I mentioned anxiety at the, at the beginning and depression at the beginning of the sermon, and scripture is clear that for these problems, thanksgiving is part of the solution. Philippians 4, 6-7 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. This means that the, the circumstances are still there. We recognize them. We know that they're there. We're not just suppressing them and ignoring them. But we are lifting up our prayers to God. We are lifting up our supplications to God with thanksgiving. Knowing that his will is ultimately for our good. Even if we don't understand it. It's this, this disposition, thanksgiving, is the prescribed attitude for us to fight anxiety and also depression. Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, 
Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Now this this psalm doesn't have any, uh, it doesn't say thanksgiving, it doesn't say gratitude, it doesn't say thankful, but you can see that, that David here has an attitude of thanksgiving. It's a short psalm, only six verses, and it starts off with, with how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? David clearly feels that there is, there is a distance between him and God. But in five verses later, it says, David says, I have trusted in your steadfast love. I have looked back at the way that you have loved me steadfastly, an enduring love, and my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. There's, a, there's almost a promise there that David is saying, my heart will rejoice. It is going to happen because of your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Again, we see David looking back at what God has done in his life and saying, God has done this, all this for me before. I can trust in his steadfast love. I can still trust that he will deal with me well. When we are in the midst of sorrow and depression, God has prescribed thanksgiving as the solution. Again, this isn't an immediate cure-all that we just recite the psalm like an incantation and suddenly we are joyful and fully trusting in God. But this gives us the example of how we ought to take our thoughts captive, that we look back at what God has done for us and trust him going forward. Sorrow and depression may be long-lasting, but God has given us the template for how we respond And that template is looking at the eternal promises of God that will outlast our sorrow, our anxiety, and our depression. Thanksgiving is also an antidote for pride. Because when we are thankful, we are putting ourselves in the right place before God. And pride is at the core of basically every sin. And and this attitude of thanksgiving doesn't just happen, though. If we struggle with pride, then we have to look at the things in our life and deeply analyze them. Look beyond just, okay, this happened and it's because I did this that this happened. Oh, this happened or I'm this way because I did this and and so on. We have to go back every step of the way and look for how God worked so that the things in our life, the blessings that we have, could come to fruition for his will and for his glory. If as we look back on our life, you end up, seeing your own power and your own ability, you need to go back further. Dig deeper. Look broader at the way that your life has come together. Thanksgiving also pushes us to God and into obedience. Ephesians 5 tells us to uh, to walk in love. It's a command to walk in love, not to walk in sin. And this command concludes 
with a command to give thanks in all things. That as we obey, we give thanks in every aspect of our lives. When we have the wondrous deeds of Christ at the forefront of our minds, then of course we would obey. If we are thankful for, to God for all that he's done for us, then of course we are going to walk in obedience out of gratitude to God. So that's why thanksgiving is important. But what does a thankful heart look like? It's more than just simply giving thanks politely as your parents taught you at the first memory of a birthday party that you have. We know the difference, don't we? We know people who are truly thankful. That this, there's this air of gratitude around them and it almost sometimes makes us uncomfortable because they're so quick to, to give thanks. It's more than just checking it off a box, but it is a disposition. It's almost a, it should almost be a part of our personality is how we might be described. A thankful heart is one that exudes thankfulness. And it's not just thankful in the moment. Look at the Samaritan. He immediately turns around and gives thanks to God. There's a humility there, a, a, a disposition there to be thankful. We've already mentioned Paul's letters. The Psalms are also full of thanksgiving to God. I'll give, I have a list here, but we're running out of time. So I'll give one. In Psalm 17, 7, the writer gives thanks to God for who he is. I will give thanks to the Lord due to his righteousness. The Psalms are full, Scripture is full of, us, of calling us to be thankful. So how do we cultivate a heart of thanksgiving? It doesn't just happen. We don't just wake up one day and suddenly we're thankful, but we have to work on this because our hearts are so desperately wicked. Thankfulness only comes when we actively choose to be thankful. Some of us might be more prone to thankfulness, but it's something that we all can grow in. And that's the reason it's a command in Scripture, because we aren't quick to be thankful. So to be, in order to grow in thankfulness, you have to, one, start with humility. Without humility, there is no way to be thankful. J.C. Ryle says that thankfulness is a flower which will never bloom except upon a root of deep humility. Humility is a recognition that we don't deserve anything that God's given us. Now, you might be saying, well, what has God done for me? Why should I be thankful to this God that I don't even believe in? Scripture is clear that, that God is a common grace, as, as we call it, that he provides for both the wicked and the righteous, for those who reject him and for those who worship him. He provides for us even when we're caught in unrepentant sin. He provided every single part of your life, everything that you have, God has provided for you. That's why you should be thankful. So in order to be more thankful, we must start by being humble, by recognizing God for who he is. I'd encourage you, if, if you want to know more, which you should want to know more, listen to Nathan's sermon last week. It is an excellent description of what it means to be humble. Some of the students in my ministry said that it was fire. So if you wanted a Gen Z endorsement, there you go. So we must start with humility, but we also must remember. We must remember all the good that God has done for us. Thankfulness requires us to be active in our thinking and in our viewing of the world around us. We often forget all the good that God has done for us and the fact that we don't deserve any of it. We're thankful for God for who he is, what he has done, 
and all the ways that he's provided. We're thankful that God didn't just leave us out to, to be who we were before Christ, before God changed our hearts. Again, we see this in the Samaritan's reaction. He's healed and he immediately turns around and gives God thanks. Is that your reaction to God's wondrous deeds? When was the last time that you gave thanks to God for what he has done in your life? When was the last time before Thursday that you give thanks to God for what he has done in your life? Remember the commands of scripture to be thankful. Believers, we ought to be cultivating hearts that are marked by thanksgiving that doesn't make sense in the circumstances we're in. We are to be, one, to be a people who are quick to give thanks for healing, whether it's physical, if God chooses to heal us, but we're, we can definitely be thankful for the healing that we've received spiritually, that we have been made right in the eyes of God by his own doing. That should be the marker for us as Christians, that we are humble and we are thankful. That doesn't mean all of our problems go away or that our problems aren't worthy of our attention. We will still fall short, we'll fall into sin, we will still be sinned against even by people within our church. But in all circumstances, being thankful to God will keep us steady amid the problems and the hardships of life. Like all of scripture, this story is calling us to respond. If you're an unbeliever, are you going to respond like the nine or the one? Are you going to take some of the teachings of Jesus, even seeing the importance of being thankful, and just try to apply it to your life and continue on your way? That path may have temporary benefits, but that path only leads to hell. Trust in all the words of Christ. Put your faith in who he is as, as Lord and Savior, and trust in him. Be like the one. That's what the story is calling you to do. If you're a believer, this passage is a reminder to have hearts of gratitude, hearts of thanksgiving. Remember your salvation. Emulate the joy and gratitude shown by this one healed man who returned. Live a life that is marked by gratitude, thanksgiving, and humility. Realize how much God has blessed you and give thanks. And live out what 1 Thessalonians 15, 5, 18 says. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for all the, all the blessings that you've given us. Thank you for all the ways that, that we ought to be thankful. I pray that you would work on our hearts Convict us when we are not. Remind us of all that you have done for us. Pray that as we go out uh, into this week that we would seek to be humble and to be a, a people of thanksgiving. Thank you for who you are and what you have done for us in your son. In Jesus' name, amen.